Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me are Kendra Mauer and Morgana. Tonight, we're introducing you to the fourth person in our team. His name is Dr. Christopher Diltz. He has a bachelor's degree in physics and a PhD in astrophysics, and he works as a computer scientist. Thank you for joining us, Chris. We're so happy to introduce you to everyone. Well, thank you very much for having me today. It's very exciting to see you again after so long. Um, as everyone knows, we have video component. You don't get to see it, but uh, it's nice to see everybody's faces. All together. Um, all together. Like a uh, team. <laughs> a team, yes. Okay. Uh, Chris, would you like to introduce the project that we sort of... Uh, we didn't drop it in your lap. We asked nicely if you would be interested in it. Um, but would you like to introduce it to our listeners? Uh, certainly. So uh, it's it, the first thing I want to do is give some background on to the data set that was provided to us, the research that we've been able to achieve thus far, and to give a high-level overview on some of the steps we want to take uh, uh, here in the future um, as soon as we have addressed the first set of questions. So to set some context, uh, the data set that was provided to us was provided to us by Albert Rosales. And he has given us a plethora of, of data that ex extends all the way back to around 2000 BC, all the way to 2019. And so this data, these data sets are a compendium of humanoid encounters that he has collected for many years. And these data and these humanoid encounters, they provide a detailed description on on a, a uh, what year the the encounter happened, uh, the month, the location, the date, and then a detailed description on the encounter itself. So just a paragraph, two paragraphs tops on what actually happened during that particular humanoid encounter. And so these are collected in a series of Word documents that Albert Rosales was kind enough to um, uh, uh, email, email me. And so the objective that I had to do was then to take these uh, Word documents and then convert them into a set of JSONs from where we could then parse the data and then begin to collect uh, descriptive statistics about uh, these different humanoid encounters. And so once we have these humanoid encounters converted into this JSON format, and once we begin uh, collecting the descriptive statistics of these different humanoid encounters, based on year, based on location, based on description, then we can look to see if there's any kind of identifiable patterns within the data and something that's worth pursuing uh, and in terms of either prediction or some other inferential statistics that we might be interested in looking at. 
Would you explain what a JSON is to the listeners, please? Certainly. So a JSON is, it represents an easy, uh, a, a, a very convenient way to capture data in a format that can be e um, e easily portable from one um, uh, computer, computer language into another. It's much more conducive to uh, capture information uh, such as a humanoid encounter in a JSON because this makes it easily portable into a database. And one of the objectives that we're hoping to achieve here through this project is the development of a robust database that other researchers that are interested in humanoid encounters or UFO encounters would be able to access and then perform their own uh, statistical analysis as well. How far have you gotten in the, in the project? How, how, how's it going? So, so that's a very good question. Um, so thus far, um, as soon as I've completed parsing the data and then converting them into JSONs, uh, the next objective was to try to do some basic um, analysis on the data after I've had to, uh, an opportunity to capture how many encounters uh, we see per year. And so that's a basic number that we would want to see if there's any anomalous behavior and spikes in humanoid encounters uh, for any particular years. And so one thing that uh, my research has been able to show is that there are a number of years in which we see a precipitous spike in humanoid encounters. And so um, I have taken the liberty of capturing that information and then trying to uh, uh, captured it into uh, an Excel sheet and then pass it along to Albert Rosales so he can uh, substantiate and confirm our findings. Based on the preliminary analysis, we're finding uh, some precipitous spikes in humanoid encounters in 1897, in 1954, 1967 and 8, a, a wide range of humanoid encounters from 1973 to 1978, and then one precipitous spike uh, in 1990 as well. So our results have been able to show that there have been a number of humanoid encounters during these particular sets of years. And um, I believe we've discussed in the past, Barb, that these coincide quite nicely with uh, flap years for UFOs as well. Yes, yes, they do. Um, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correspondence, it but it's pretty, pretty darn close. close. Um, um, and we can also eventually start looking at uh, historical happenings, uh, political, geopolitical upheavals, uh, 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 weather phenomena, strange, you know, ecological phenomena, volcanoes, earthquakes, that space, sort of stuff. Space weather. So, so. Yes, yeah, space, space weather. weather. Solar storms. So, so a couple of the results I've been able to garner is that, as I mentioned before, uh, we have been able to uh, capture and parse the information on each of these humanoid recounters based on location as well. So not only do we have the ability of determining like how many humanoid encounters we have per year, but we also have a way of determining how many uh, humanoid encounters are localized in a particular country or in a particular US state per year as well. So this gives us a way to determine if there's any uh, flaps at any particular locations, either in the United States or across the world as well. 
Now, based on my preliminary findings, I've been able to deduce uh, that uh, the United States has the highest number of humanoid encounters based on the data sets that Alvar Results has provided to me. Uh, the current number of humanoid encounters I've captured thus far are just over 8,400. Uh, the next one is tied to England, which is just over 1,800, and then Russia, which stands around 1,332. So we've created a, a set of bar charts that are able to uh, identify which uh, countries have the most humanoid encounters and which ones have the least. And we've also taken the liberty of doing this. Uh, see my charts here. I love that you have maps and charts and it just, it makes everything <laughs> feel very professional. It's, it's so nice. sexy. It is. It is. We, we have That's the sexy. best scientists. So uh, one of the other items I've been able to identify is I've looked at humanoid encounters broken down by U.S. state. And at this time, uh, California uh, is the dominant state uh, for, of humanoid encounters at around 847. New York is the next greatest with 507. And an interesting anomaly that I've been able to capture from the data is that the third highest uh, humanoid encounters by U.S. territory is Puerto Rico. Now, um, I was I was I was surprised to see that, Chupacabra. but um, I, I think that warrants uh, discussion amongst uh, the uh, the research community here on why Puerto Rico would stand to dominate as the third highest uh, U.S. territory in terms of humanoid encounters here. Another interesting uh, item I've been able to identify in my findings here is that Puerto Rico actually dominated the uh, number of humanoid encounters in the United States around 1994. No other U.S. territory uh, dominated the number of humanoid encounters in the U.S. except for uh, Puerto Rico in, in the early to mid-90s. Was 94 and early and mid-90s the Chupacabra flap or La Llorona or both? Chupacabra and La Llorona, but mostly Chupacabra. Okay, that's that's what I thought I remembered, although not like my living memory remembered. I was four, but <laughs> my, I, I was alive and awake during that My time. recollection of, of research things that I've read. When was Arecibo Observatory? That was about 60 years ago, 57 to 60 years ago. So I think... I believe in the late 60s, the early 70s. I'd be interested in the activity with that as related to humanoid encounters. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting thought. Um, have you done any math to figure out, you know, California and New York are two of our most populated states. So it stands to reason that they would have the most encounters because they have the most people. Um, but mm -hmm. you could also do it per capita. You could do a, a calculation per capita and see if, if that holds, if it continues to hold true or if other states then are going to come up in the rankings. So that is one thing we could do is that we can uh, try to correlate the population of a given state with the number of encounters. Uh, but it is important to try to normalize that data. Otherwise, that could give us misleading or skewed results. 
So that is one th item that we could pursue uh, in the next steps and some of the other results that, and goals we want to achieve for this particular project. Did you, uh, were you able to uh, confirm or, uh, or uh, disprove the Wednesday hypothesis? So that is a good question. Uh, let me look over my... While you're looking at your charts, I'll mm -hmm. mention that the Wednesday hypothesis are, was uh, an idea that John Keel had when he was manually keeping track of UFO reports and humanoid encounters and all sorts of you know strangeness. And he had discovered in his very, very... Um, carefully kept records, but still not on a computer, that you were more likely to experience something strange on a Wednesday as opposed to any other day of the week. So the listeners at this time, I have not been able to confirm or deny that yet. That's another research question I'm hoping to address. Okay. That is a, a good thing to, to look into. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, I have heard of other researchers who have confirmed it, and I've heard of other researchers who have disproven it. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to know. It may be data set dependent, which is part of why we're so excited about trying to get this database built so everybody can access it and add to it. It's sort of the dream, I think, is sort of the Library of Alexandria, but for very strange things and online. <laughs> yeah, that that that's a that's definitely a goal. Um, what do you envision doing with this data set uh, in the future, Chris? So, so we have a number of different directions that we want to take with not just this data set, but with other data sets that are available for public records. So one of the obvious objectives is we want to try to expand our already existing database. And this way, this will give us an opportunity to either confirm or refute uh, what some of the, our earliest data sets are beginning to tell us. Uh, we can refine our, um, our hypotheses and, and make these uh, conclusions much more robust as we acquire new data sets. And then, and most importantly, uh, we want to try to see if we can apply uh, big data sets and analysis as well as uh, machine learning, traditional machine learning, and deep learning uh, as a way to identify uh, new patterns and new, new anomalous behavior within the data sets that ordinary traditional statistical-based techniques, while good to utilize, uh, might not be well cut out for the big data that we're going to be working with. As our data set begins to expand and gets gets bigger and bigger, it makes more sense to apply machine learning and deep learning in particular to see if we can find any patterns using uh, natural language processing and algorithms. Can you explain deep learning? Yes. So what, what deep learning encompasses is, um, and I'll, I'll explain this to the listeners as well, um, we will we'll first want to take a step back and, and describe what an artificial neural network is. So an artificial neural network, it, it's, a, it's a machine learning uh, system where you have a set of artificial neurons and uh, they have a, a set of weights and biases. And then as you input data into each of these neurons, 
uh, the, the information is combined. And then depending on what the activation function of that neuron is, uh, and then uh, that neuron is then fires and then transmits that information to other neurons in what's referred to as an artificial neural network. Now the question becomes is that why are artificial neural networks so important in machine learning? Uh, artificial neural networks when combined with uh, backpropagation and uh, stochastic gradient descent, it has a way of learning uh, uh, a set of uh, it has the ability to train itself based on a set of uh, labeled data that you feed this artificial neural net. So as you provide this training set to an artificial neural net, it begins to learn uh, the properties and behavior about that data set. And thereby that could be used as a way to perform different machine learning tasks, such as regression, such as anomaly detection, and such as classification. So these machine learning algorithms are, are ideally suited in order to perform classification uh, tasks that we assign based on the data sets that we provide them. Now, deep learning, what deep learning encompasses is uh, artificial neural net architectures that have layers of around three or more hidden layers. And so this is what's referred to as deep learning because you can do a number of uh, different machine learning tasks within these artificial neural networks, and they're able to automatically extract features about the data. And so this automatic feature, automatic feature extraction is ideally suited to help try to identify patterns within the data that we're interested in identifying. Nice. So forgive my extremely simplistic analogy that is about to happen but it's like having your own librarian and assistant and grad student built in to a data set collating and sorting and doing it all for you after you kind of wind it up and let it go and i would can we name it like <laughs> i feel like it needs a name <laughs> so so the benefit here. So the benefit here is that um, as soon as we have an architecture up and running, that we can we can certainly do that. <laughs> Yay! All right, you get to name it. Yes. <laughs> or yeah, Chris has veto power. Well, yeah, because he built it. He's he, dad. He is dad. He's the dad. He is the so. Dad. So if it's something totally ridiculous, he can say no. So so the benefit. You gotta do you in. realize? This is the beginning of a bad sci-fi movie, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is totally the beginning <laughs> of a bad sci-fi movie. Called Chris Dad, and now we're naming it, and this is going to get awkward fast. <laughs> as long as it doesn't have laser eyes. So the benefit here, and this is why uh, this is exciting, is that with each new uh, encounter that we collect within this data set, we can use these trained uh, artificial neural networks in such a way that as soon as our uh, model has been successfully trained, any new encounter we get, we can feed it into this neural network and it'll automatically begin to classify uh, these different encounters based on the text description that's provided to it. And so this makes it far easier than compared to having an ordinary human look at it, review it, and then uh, tediously begin to put each and every single one of these in one by one. The whole process can be automated and makes it much more streamlined. Which is part of why I had the idea of contacting uh, 
Mr. Rosales myself because I had read several of his books of humanoid encounters and there was so much data and not any analysis of that data. So data without analysis is, it's not useless, but it's hard to parse out into useful chunks. And so, you know, I don't think about computers first off because I tend to make them explode by accident and I don't mean to, but that is, that is what happens. So I was like, you know, I could get some post-it notes and some highlighters and I could sit here and figure out how many in each book is a being of light and how many are Bigfoot and how many have UFOs. And then I'm like, what's wrong with you? That would be fun to watch from afar. Yeah, it was. And then I was like, do I know somebody who's smart enough to figure this out? And then I was like, oh, I do. Hey. (laughs) And so that's how Chris got uh, uh, enticed into this project. Um, Didn't we bribe him with pie and pie help? Pie help. That seems to be the going rate. (laughs) We'll just we'll feed you. Um, also Chris is just awesome and has been friends with me for years yes and I also did not think of computers I'm currently poking around at cattle mutilations and I'm doing it the dumb way with a stick because I don't yeah with essentially (laughs) stone knives and bear skins yes I'm over here with stone knives and bear skins like taking notes and highlighting and putting pins in a map. <laughs> I'm going to give her yarn next week so she can connect the pins. Different colors so that the yarn means different things. Oh yeah, no. I've I've got a yeah, that's a thing. Because I do not have the capacity to build a really cool machine learning AI magician thing. I I can't do that. But I, I can put pins and maps, and I remember things really so, well. <laughs> so one additional thing that we're interested in doing, um, I'm not going to go into a tremendous amount of detail because um, the objectives of uh, this line of research are still uh, very much in flux. But we also want to do, uh, we also want to take uh, text-based documents and also work towards scanning them. And then, so as a result of... Um, uh, individuals uh, reviewing these documents, extracting the notes, and then we begin parsing those notes out and then look for any kind of humanoid encounter uh, descriptions from that, or UFO descriptions, Yeti, Bigfoot, etc. cetera. Uh, these uh, convolutional neural net programs will be able to scan the documents and then uh, extract the text from them automatically and thereby uh, be able to put it directly within our database. So this would be a much, again, an, another automated approach that can take these encounters. Um, as long as they're available either in PDF or picture format, we can use these CNN net, uh, architectures to scan the uh, PDFs, the documents, and then uh, extract the, the information we want and then also convert it into and import it within our database as well. I think I know what I want to name it. <laughs> it hasn't been built yet. I know. <laughs> Don't name it until it's been built. I know, I know. 
Okay. I definitely have an idea for at least one name, one possible. All right. I'll come up okay. with like 10. That's okay. going to be my big contribution to this project. I get to name the AI. <laughs> and She's Chris gets to pat me on the hand and go, yes, yes. <laughs> go play with your go play with your notebooks, sweetheart. <laughs> uh one of the one of the things that I know the last time we talked, we discussed was the sorts. You, you've done some analysis of the types of phenomena, yeah. humanoid sightings that, that mm-hmm. you have come across in this data set. Do you want to talk a little uh, bit about yes. that? So for starters, what I've attempted to do is try to look at each of the descriptions uh, for each of the encounters that I've been able to successfully parse. And one item I want to uh, mention to the listeners is that I've also obviously been able to count the number of uh, encounters that uh, are collected from Albert Rosales' data. So at this time, uh, there are are over 22,000 humanoid encounters that I've been able to collect from Albert Rosales' data. And so this is a prime data set that we can work on in order to look at some initial trends and behaviors on what we see with just humanoid encounters. Now, to answer your question, Bard, uh, with each of these uh, these 22,000 encounters, they have a description section, which provides a paragraph, two paragraphs or more uh, of a detail description of what actually happened during that particular uh, humanoid encounter. And so what I've attempted to do thus far is do a frequency word count uh, based on a selected set of words that was provided by you, Kendra, and Morgana, and then determine which of those words uh, was the highest number of counts uh, based on uh, going through each of those 22,000 descriptions. And based on my current findings, uh, the, the, the highest number of uh, the the highest frequency uh, was tied to the word light, which is just over 10,000 or close to 11,000 particular hits. Uh, Ape is the second highest with just under 8,000. Creature was uh, the third with uh, a little over 4,400. Humanoid was uh, the fifth highest with 4,091. Elf came afterwards with 3,500. UFO uh, was next with 2,694, et cetera, et cetera. So this can give us an idea on like what these, uh, the, the highest number of, uh, uh, the highest frequency of words there are in these text-based descriptions, which is good uh, for an initial analysis, but we wanna take a, this, there's a next step and dig a little bit deeper on this. And this is where the natural language processing element is gonna come into this where not only can we get an idea of like uh, the dominant set of words there are in these text-based descriptions, but we also want to get the semantics from these descriptions as well. So we get uh, syntactical information from the description and semantical uh, description of the, or, or, or information from the description. And in so doing, we want to try to compare the semantic dis- uh, details of these descriptions with one another and see if there's any relationships between them. Can you explain what you mean by semantic and syntactic description? I know what you mean. So, so semantics is more tied with the meaning of words. So we have uh, words such as describe or follow 
Uh, and these words by themselves, we can all understand, but how they fit into the words around them within a particular sentence can vary depending on how they're used. So uh, you can use one particular word in a sentence and it could have one meaning. And then you can use that same word in a second sentence, but it could have a slightly different or an entirely different meaning. So it's important uh, as in terms of natural language processing to try to gauge uh, where that word is located within the sentence, because that gives us an idea of uh, the semantics of how that word is actually used. And of course that changes depending upon the language that, that the is correct. Yeah. document and the program is using the human language. Yeah. So you wouldn't just be say counting yeah. numbers of mentions of lights. You would be counting and analyzing, you know, this being had lighted eyes versus a halo of light versus it, so, it itself was glowing. So it would get. So, so one uh, analogy I'd like to give to the listeners here <laughs> is let's say we have encounter A uh, that happened in 1878 and it has a particular text based description associated with it. So if we can calculate um, like a, a measure of the semantics of that description, and then we have another encounter, we'll call it encounter B in 1957, and uh, it has in its own description to it. And then we calculate uh, the semantic information from that particular description. If those two uh, descriptions uh, based on the semantics are very similar in terms of words used, in terms of overall meaning, then that could suggest that this could be an encounter from a similar being or the same being. So this is the kind of analysis that we wanna try to uh, do in order to determine if there's any text-based descriptions that are described similarly. Which of course begs the question of are we discussing discrete entities of the sim similar types of entities uh, or is are, are these encounters partially generated by an individual's cultural experience or their own psyche, for example? Um, there's some uh, theories, Greg Bishop, has one that he calls the co-creation theory where an encounter is partially physical from a non-human intelligence, but is also partially psychic and is partially generated within the psyche mm -hmm. of the human who is witnessing it or experiencing it. So one of the things that, you know, this sort of very, deep analysis can do is it can give us an idea of cultural relevance and cultural similarities between sightings that may help prove or disprove that kind of theory. Or at least nudge us in, one in a direction. direction. <laughs> right. Hopefully and maybe possibly. <laughs> and, and I think this is where the geographic information will assist us. So with those text-based descriptions, along with the locational information for each of those humanoid encounters, we could determine if uh, like a particular humanoid encounter is shifting from one location to another. And uh, that would be 
really interesting to see if we can try to plot that visually in the form of a three-dimensional plot of, of, of a world map, for example. So these are the kinds of uh, research objectives that we have just begun to scratch the surface on from Albert's data. And with the acquisition of new data sets that we're going to acquire with our database, we'll be able to ask uh, and provide evidence of whether or not these questions uh, hold true or not, if, if, if they are correct or if they're, uh, if they're ultimately refuted. Because at the end of the day, that is what we need to be cognizant about in terms of working with this particular data, is that uh, the data, these are written by authors, and it's important to try to get independent uh, data sets from, uh, from other people and not stay focused just on one individual. It's also important to um, accept the possibility that depending on what research questions we ask, the data set could refute it that the Wednesday phenomenon could uh, hold, uh, be, be uh, disproven based on the data sets that I work with. So it's important to keep that an open mind on that and not stay fixed uh, to a particular mindset, is that depending on what the data says, that's the direction that uh, we're ultimately going to go. And it, it's also important. And that can... It's also important. And that can be remarkably difficult. Yeah. Sorry. No worries. So it's important to stress not only uh, the data that we work with, but the analyses that we apply. So we want to provide robust statistical analysis in order to ensure that the conclusions that we are drawing uh, utilize uh, some of the most up-to-date statistical and machine learning techn uh, based techniques uh, in order to uh, help us collect and draw all the conclusions we want from the data. When you talk about expanding the database, are you talking about expanding with more humanoid encounters or adding other anomalous encounters into the database? Uh, both, actually. So um, based on our conversations we had with Albert Rosales, he's still expanding his data set. And so we eventually want to include um, other data sets that are open source. And so this will give us the ability to um, create different database objects within our database architecture, and then try and see if there's any patterns or relationships between the data sets that we uh, collect and work with. That's awesome. This is just so cool. I feel so geeky, <laughs> but I, this is just so cool. It's so exciting. <laughs> it's so it exciting. Is, it is exciting. One of the things that makes me happy is most people, you know, you have the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, and they have a huge database of Bigfoot sightings, which is great because you can go state by state, you can go by country by country, state by state, you can go by cities, you can you can look at all sorts of, of ways to find you know sightings and, and look them up. And then there's all of the UFO organizations, they all have their databases what you're talking about is taking those databases and mm -hmm. adding them together and what that will do. And it's a very keel thing to do. He did, he was not a computer man. He, he, he had friends who did some computer analysis, which is but, how the Wednesday phenomena happened. Right. Right. They fed a bunch, a couple hundred. Exactly. To a computer and it spit it out back when it was punch cards. <laughs> yes. Back, back when my mom 
used computers. What I what I'm excited about is the ability to look at this as an overall series of phenomena. It's it's a it's it's an overarching high strangeness database. And I I assume you're going to make it such that we can take packets of information in and out and shape it in different ways to, I don't know, compare and contrast different sets of data. Am I correct? That's correct. One thing we want to do is as soon as we have each of these databases for each of these different data sets collected, then um, down the road, I would want to wrap this with a web interface and then make this accessible to other researchers. And uh, one thing that we could do is we could give the users who log on to this particular database the ability to export the results in a CSV file. And this will give them the ability to begin doing their own data analysis with the data sets that they happen to export. I think that would be awesome. I really, I, I think part of why this happened was mom and I, before we even started this podcast, we had just been noticing an uptick in strange stuff and we're trying to track it. And what had, what we were doing is mom and I were both reading different chunks of the internet and keeping in touch with our friends who noticed strange things um, and listening to podcasts and things. And we were reading and trading books back and forth. And both of us just started bemoaning the fact that nobody jammed all of this together in one place. And it was like, why? Why has nobody put it all in one place? Like, bless the Bigfoot Researchers Organization and bless Albert and bless all these people for, for amassing all of this knowledge and, and all these accounts. I just, I don't nobody had had sat there and collated everything and corroborate and looked at how it all interacted and you know mom and i are trying to do a small version of that in our own heads with notebooks and like mom said that was when we were like wait we know a chris hey chris <laughs> please do this well <clears throat> it's there's lots of computer databases out there there's, they just haven't been analyzed altogether. You know, one of the things that we may find out is that there are going to be hot spots where all sorts of things happen, and we may be able to pinpoint them and then eventually possibly predict a flap before it happens. Which will be awesome. That was one of the things Keel dreamed of. He really wanted to be able to do that. Um, and, or, you know, considering how odd this phenomena is, is, you know, we'll think that we can predict it and then it'll show up half a world away doing something else at the time that we predicted it. Laughing at us. Laughing. Yes, absolutely. Um, what sort of 
geographic analysis do you think that we can add in? Um, I'm interested in, is there a geological basis for any of this? Um, would we be able to take the maps that you've generated and uh, collate them with maps, say from the USGS, US Geological Service Survey? So, so that is a very real possibility. Um, one thing that I've been able to do thus far is to break the information down up based on country and then based on state. Uh, but we do have, uh, uh, typically within the encounters, we have information that's tied to the city along with the state in which the encounter happens to happen. So with that in mind, we can start breaking the inf this information down into latitudes and longitudes. And in so doing, we can create a uh, 3D map of either, or a two-dimensional map of the United States, or a 3D map of the entire world, and then plot these, these humanoid encounters uh, in terms of latitude, longitude, and then time. And so with that, we can then uh, cross-reference that with uh, geological maps, and then trying to see if there's any kind of a spatial relationship between the two. I am going to flip out if there ends up being some evidence of ley lines of <laughs> things matching up with the old ley network. I'm going to flip out and be like, oh my God, the sweet hippies were right. <laughs> so, so one thing I do want to stress is um, I can develop a statistical hypothesis test to say that yes, um, phenomenon A and phenomenon B uh, appear to be correlated. Uh, but it's the causation element that we need to be weary of, is that the correlation doesn't imply causation. So it's an interesting relationship to see that indeed uh, the geological maps as well as the uh, location of any human or encounter seem to match up. Uh, it's important to be weary that the causation aspect is something that needs to be looked at with a little bit more detail. I, I was going to point out... Uh you know uh that the you can draw a line between mm -hmm. any two points it, it just that's 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 how it works um, i just like the the Keelian theory that the ancient lay system may have had something to do with mapping the electromagnetic field of the planet and there may be something to that also the electromagnetic fields of um astrological astronomical bodies sorry i'm still stuck on the christmas episode with astronomy <laughs> astrology being the same thing way back in the day at uh, least we didn't ask you to talk about chemistry and alchemy yeah i would well we would have to ask one of the somebody else we i think we know at least two alchemists we do we do we have a very broad group of friends um, <laughs> with very strange predilections. and alchemists <laughs> and the undertaker's son and <laughs> all kinds of things. So, hmm. When you talk about uh, mm -hmm. correlation and causation, my 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 way of looking at it has always been correlation that does not correct. prove causation, but it does give you a direction in which to look. Um, if 
if you have uh, two sets of, of two packets of data that correlate, say you have two, uh, two sets of humanoid encounters that happen in the same place, but mm -hmm. separated in time. And then you also plot it on a map and you figure out that there is, I don't know, uh, it's on one of the U.S. Geological Survey magnetic anomalies mm -hmm. maps, which they have those, which are really cool. And you can find them on the internet because I've done that. Um, again, that doesn't prove causation, but it does give us a place to begin looking. So in the, with, with any kind of investigation, um, using uh, the scientific method, like uh, you want to try to build a model with that data set. And if one of the questions you're trying to answer uh, is dealing explicitly with, are two items related either spatially in terms of, are they spatially correlated? Are they correlated by, um, uh, correlated in time? If there's a particular lag between phenomenon A and phenomenon B from one time uh, point in time to another. Uh, it gives you an idea of moving uh, your research towards a particular direction. But you really need to isolate the physical phenomenon in order to develop a model to say unequivocally, yes, phenomenon A and phenomenon B are, are related to one another. To take a step back and say these two items are uh, correlated, it appears, therefore A affects B. Um, but you don't really actually give a reason as to why A, um, uh, between how A and B are related. So while two phenomena can appear correlated, um, you need to build a physical model on how the two are related to one another. And if it turns out that you can reproduce that phenomenon and then show that it does indeed hold true, then that moves it from a step from a hypothesis to an actual scientific theory. So, um, uh, to, to the listeners here, um, like the scientific method, you uh, you have a hypothesis, you collect a, a set of data, you perform statistical analysis on the data, you compare it with your original hypothesis. If it's confirmed, then it moves on into a, into the scientific theory. So in, in, in terms of this uh, correlation versus causation analogy here, is that if you, to see, if you see two phenomena that are correlated to one another, then that could imply a possible causation, but that doesn't imply that causation or correlation implies causation. So you want to try to build a physical model as to why those two items are related. And if you can reproduce it over and over, then that puts it into the realm of an actual scientific theory instead. Thank you for explaining that concisely and clearly. Yeah, otherwise we I am not that about good it. at explaining. <laughs> I'm fine at yes. explaining things, but it it's I'm not concise. So <laughs> No. No, you are none not. of us are concise. <laughs> I, I I I try to be. Chris is concise. We are not concise. <laughs> it comes of writing scientific papers instead of instead of magazine articles. It's a different thing entirely. I remember when I had to try yeah. to write scientific papers. I was very bad at it. It was terrible. Um, so if you were to take 
it, let's let's go with the correlation and causation. <sighs> See, I'm generally of the opinion that many humanoid sightings are not physical events. Mm-hmm. That is that is my personal take on it. That we are not dealing with a purely physical phenomena. I think the best I could say Mm -hmm. is that it's paraphysical and that it's physical sometimes. Sometimes it does leave traces, it does leave footprints or hair or whatever behind. Um, But it's mostly not physical. In that case, what sort of theories could you use to take those two events that happened in the same place separated by time but they're not physical what sort of theory could be built around that so that that's a uh, that's a more trickier question um so in terms of two phenomenon that could be correlated with one another but aren't exactly physical uh the question is is that if you have these events happen and they're not physical, how can we test this phenomenon out in order to build an actual theory behind them? So, uh, like, like with any kind of scientific theory, you want to have uh, first you want to collect a series of data, then you want to develop a physical model, you want to compare data with that physical model, and if the two hold out, then you have a scientific theory with one another. Uh, if you observe a phenomenon. Uh, for example, that something that you would perceive to not be physical, then uh, the question then becomes is how can other observers see that same phenomenon, even though it's not physical, and from there on develop a body of data from which a physical model, an actual uh, model can be developed from. So that's one of the big hurdles we currently have Uh, with phenomenon that could be perceived as being not physical is the reproducibility. And that's one of the bedrocks of science. Um, It's it's hard to reproduce Bigfoot and ghosts. Although I honestly, Bigfoot and ghosts are probably more easily reproducible than other aspects of the bizarre high strangeness phenomena. Because hauntings tend, there tend to be some hauntings that are location-based that you can go to. And there is an element of reproducibility there. Um, Whether that is a ghost or some other environmental factor remains to be seen sometimes. And again, there are some places where Bigfoot sightings are frequent because there are people who are habituators who feed Bigfoot on their property, essentially. Although I always, I th- I hear about that. And I think that's one, really cool. And two, I'm not that brave. And three, are you sure you're not just like giving offerings to your local forest god now? <laughs> but. So... So, so to answer your uh, your question, Barb, uh, the idea that 
we could, for example, be, or we're being visited either by extraterrestrials or if we're being visited by interdimensional beings. You have like the extraterrestrial based hypothesis as to the origin of aliens or UFO encounters. And then you have the interdimensional hypothesis in which these are entities that actually come from different either planes of existence or different dimensions. So you could attempt to develop a theoretical model as to what these beings would be and then how we could perceive the physical phenomenon uh, through each of these different uh, categories. And then we could try to uh, determine what sort of observational signatures these phenomenon would give off. And then we would compare the data with the model and then determine if that indeed holds true or not. The problem here is um, developing uh, a physical model, for example, for interdimensional beings. So what exactly would that look like? Like, uh, would these beings be traveling from one dimension into another? And if so, would they actually give off any electromagnetic radiation that us beings, as in humans, could actually perceive that? So we could develop physical models for that. Um, it would take a good amount of mathematics and physics to uh, articulate all that. But then you would also have to develop an experiment on how uh, observers would actually capture that phenomenon and then compare that data with the actual uh, physical model itself. Am I saying it's not possible? No. Um, it's just I do not know if any researchers have actually taken the time to sit down and articulate what that would actually look like. And so it is it. Paul Aino might have. Mm -hmm. Paul Aino? Sorry, Paul, Paul Aino. Paul Aino might have. Yeah, he might. He might. Um, he, I, I think I gave you his book, Chris, to read, but I may not have. Um, no, he, he gave it to me. I, I'm, I'm mailing it to him. Okay. And his Christmas present gets here for me to mail that to him. Okay. Um, it, he has an interesting idea about ghosts that they are not dead people or um, they're not uh, pieces of memory sort of somehow sublimated into an area like the, the stone tape theory that they are beings that live in a universe or dimension just slightly adjacent to ours and that there are conditions that allow us to see them and for sometimes them to see us and mm -hmm. interact. So you're right. He may have come up with a way to try to make a, a model of, of that to test it as a testable theory or a testable mm -hmm. hypothesis. Um, but I don't know. But if somebody has, it would probably be him. Or he would know someone who has. Yes. Theoretically. Yes. Again, Maybe. this 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 is uh. a problem because we don't have a lot of scientists working on these sorts of things mm -hmm. openly. We have a few scientists working on it very secretively because they don't want their reputations damaged by associating with this. And, and they, they have to make a living. As you know, uh, we don't pay real well for this sort of thing, you know, 
there's there's not big grants for this sort of thing um so that's that's probably part of why it's sort of a wide open muddly mess you know we have all of this data that people have collected over the years in the forms of books and websites and and databases but it hasn't all been collected and gathered and then looked at to see if there's any sort of connections between them. So that's, that's why I like the idea of this project. I do too. That's very exciting. There's like a gap. That, yes. that if we can, ma if this manages to happen, could start to fill that gap and like other researchers can come along and be like, Ooh, and use it and like go further with it. And just, it can, maybe we can be that little tiny pebble that like starts an avalanche. That would be nice. Or uh, at least we'll have a really cool data set to play with. I, I'll take that too. <laughs> I think in general, adding more voices to the entire chorus certainly helps the whole, um, uh, opera, I guess. But if you add more people to it, more people are willing to come out and talk about it. And the more level-headed people you have willing to talk about it, the more other people are more willing to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the other reason I'm really, really happy we have Chris on our team. <laughs> because he's extremely level-headed. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, if we get too wild-eyed, he can help rein us in. So, so one as so one of the aspects about this project that I find most intriguing is that it's a very large data set, and as a computer engineer, a computer scientist, I can take the opportunity of designing and help implementing this database architecture, and then just on the surface to identify this, if there's immediately any patterns or anomalies within the data, data sets that we input into this database. And then that could lead to new research questions that the, uh, uh, the research community here can uh, begin pick apart and uh, then ask new questions that we can try to uh, develop other uh, statistical-based uh, techniques and methodologies for in order to try to address and resolve those new questions. So this is how a body of knowledge is ultimately going to move forward, is you have enough data that begins to collect, and then this be uh, eventually either confirms or refutes uh, hypotheses that the community might have had. And as this community, this body of knowledge begins to pool more and more, this will lead to new avenues of research that the community didn't think of beforehand. And so this is how knowledge progresses ultimately. Which is also awesome. And is sort of in another, in our own way, the other, the three ladies of this podcast, we kind of are doing that in our own way by talking to a bunch of people and sharing our stories and doing our own digging around and talking about stuff we've found out and just talking to other people and hearing what they've found out. And then we also have Chris who is building this amazing data analysis AI that is, I feel like I'm calling it the wrong thing by calling it an AI. So if I'm calling it the wrong thing, Chris, just tell me. I'm 
-hmm. brain is categorizing it like that because it's an easier shorthand and to an extent I I know what you're talking about you've explained it to me enough but I I think more in sci-fi than in sure you know computer science <laughs> movies so yeah books so I I, books I would articulate too. it as uh, designing and implementing a research database that the community can can, act, can get access to. And then uh, a project that surrounds the design and implementation of this database architecture that employs uh, both descriptive and inferential statistics while also using traditional machine learning and deep machine learning to identify any patterns and anomalies in the data and then uh, either confirm or refute any uh, questions or hypotheses that independent researchers have been able to uh, remark on their data uh, through the work that's been collected over the past few decades. That, 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 that's, more of an ex okay. that's more of an extended response. Thank you. But... I knew it. <laughs> it's I okay. I knew you, weren't concise. you weren't concise for, the, for a moment. We were very proud of you. It was great. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to talk about with the project, Chris, that we haven't asked you a question about because we either forgot it or got distracted or. So one thing I would like, to, I would encourage the listeners here is to contact our group. If you have questions about any phenomenon or any uh, objectives that you would like to see addressed from this research, then by all means, um, feel free to ask those questions uh, because these kind of research questions could lead to new and unique insights that we did not think of before. So me, along with Kendra, Barb, and Morgana, we have developed a series of questions that on the surface seem very appealing and interesting to us but we're also looking for more uh, interpretations from other people. And if we can get feedback from the listeners on any research questions that would be especially intriguing, then by all means, feel free to email or contact Barb, Morgana, and Kendra here. And I will work to uh, put these questions into our list of research areas that we can focus on for this, for this project. Excellent. And... <laughs> you can you can get our email address off of the website but it's also I can I can tell you easily right now it's 6djk67 at gmail.com so that's not too hard to write down I said it slowly enough mm -hmm. um, thank you Chris for joining us sorry we didn't get to Thanks, you earlier Chris. but you were busy and so we didn't we didn't want to you know <laughs> chase you down and go come on be on the show um but we're glad to have you we're gonna have you back we're gonna have chris back we're gonna talk more from a personal perspective with chris as to why he's interested in this because he didn't really say why uh but he does have a why but you don't get it this time we're, we're gonna make you come back and listen again um Thank you. Hanger, hanging from a cliff. That's why he's called Cliffhanger. <laughs> every parent just cringed. Yes, every parent did. I know exactly where that's from. 
I don't. <laughs> oh, you'll be. I'll send you a link. No, don't. <laughs> Until next time, keep your eyes on the skies. And salt across your doorstep. And don't ever talk to the chupacabra. Thank you.